Hello and welcome to Everyday Sublime. This is your host, Josh Summers, and I'm delighted to have you here with me today. Okay, today I am joined by Donna Brooks. Donna is a somatic movement and yoga therapist with over 35 years of experience. She also happens to be the mother of my late and dear friend, Michael Brooks, her son. Michael tragically passed away in July of 2020, as some of you are aware, and this left a big hole in both her heart, my heart, and in many hearts throughout the world. Um, and so in this conversation, uh, we discuss how Donna used really her background as a somatic movement therapist and yoga teacher to help her navigate the very painful and incredibly difficult energies of loss and grief. And I think this is a really timely conversation for this podcast. Timely in the sense that we're now over two years into the pandemic, and I don't know anybody who hasn't been touched in small or massive ways by these very challenging emotions and energies tied up in loss and grief. And as Donna says on her website, to grieve is a very human experience. And in many traditional cultures, there's an abundance of rituals and wisdom to guide us. But, and this is what I really worry about, in our modern world, we have lost the art and knowledge of how to grieve. So if this feels resonant to you, what I want to recommend is that Donna has a course that's being produced by Yoga University or Yoga U Online. And that course called Stepping Safely into the Chaos of Grief, Embodiment Tools for Meeting Loss and Grief. This is an online course and it's available through Yoga U Online. There's a link for you in the show notes, so please check this out. I feel Donna brings a very down-to-earth, easy to relate to, and, and richly wise perspective on this very spiritual theme that all of us will face sooner or later. And um, I really encourage you to check it out. I also have a link to her website, originalbodywisdom.com. So both the link to her personal website and to her course with Yoga U will be in the show notes. Do check those out and consider, even if this doesn't, isn't, if this isn't a live theme in your life right now, the theme of loss and grief, it's likely the theme of someone else's life right now. Again, we're all in this, in this, in this uh, sort of state of world chaos together. So if you know someone else that might benefit from this, do consider sharing this information or this resource with them. And I know I will appreciate that. Donna will appreciate that. And in, in, a, in a spiritual sense, I know Michael, my dear friend, would be delighted for you to check out and, and work with his mother. So without further ado, I now bring you Donna Brooks and the Yoga of Grief. Today, I am with Donna Brooks. Donna, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. You're so welcome, Josh. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you here. Uh, we've been in the works planning this conversation for a while now. Um, and one of the things that has inspired our conversation um, is something that I, I, is difficult for me to talk about. And I can't imagine what it's like for you to talk about. But one of the contributing factors is that um, your son and my dear friend, Michael, Michael Brooks, uh, passed away uh, 
tragically all too soon, about a year and a half ago, or in, in mm-hmm. July of 2020. And, um, and so that obviously plunged you into a, a whole new world of loss and grief. And um, professionally, you are a yoga therapist and a somatic movement therapist. And I know since Michael's passing, you've been focusing, I think, a lot more on integrating and processing grief, both for yourself personally, but then that's become part of what you're teaching. That's really become part of your dharma as a teacher, um, sharing about ways that yoga therapy and and somatic practice can help um, metabolize grief. And just given the state of our world, given the state of what's happening for many people in light of COVID, I think this theme of grief, loss, the, the pain that comes with that, the confusion, the overwhelm, um, the disorientation. I think this is a hugely important topic. Um, it's one that I've been wanting to get into on the podcast. And I think um, you're the ideal voice at this moment to, to have that conversation with. So thanks for coming on again. Um, you're so welcome. And this is it's like to open this up. I mean, thinking through this, When I knew Michael closely, which was um, over 10 years ago when we were co-writing the the Buddhist playbook and hanging out quite a bit, I never in my wildest imagination uh, thought that I, A, would ever be hosting a podcast myself or that B, I'd be hosting a conversation with Michael's mother, you, about the fact that Michael's not here anymore. Um, And um, you know, not to touch a, I mean, I know this is a very painful topic, but, um, how are you doing? And I, I, when I ask you that, I, I hear Michael's voice in my head. I remember him saying this on one of his shows where in COVID he said, how are you doing is, is a legitimate real question again. It's not just a kind of a, a, a casual mm-hmm. conversation starter. It's how are, how are you has, has real meaning because so many people are, 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 are having a hard time. But how are you doing right now? Well, that's interesting. Um, In the realness of answering that question, I think that what is important to understand about grief and loss, something as intense and dramatic as my own, or um, it may just be more of a chronic missing of something that someone is experiencing Um, The important thing to realize is that multiple experiences can be had at once. So I feel what I call grief very regularly. There's a certain sadness to that. Sometimes there's anger with that. Uh, Sometimes there's a kind of even despair or resignation But at the same time, I also feel a zest for life, a gratitude for life, and um, joy of memories. For myself, following Michael's death, I feel a hopefulness of some kind of spiritual future. And I know that's not everyone's cup of tea, but for me, I do feel that. And I think that one of the paradoxes about life is that when we're really open to life, the tremendous suffering and the tremendous joy can coexist. And 
I was lucky in the sense when Michael died that I had many years of somatic practice underneath me because I already had a lot of practice in letting my body do what my body needs to do to process whatever. Mm-hmm. And I feel that that is what I have to offer um, people who are experiencing grief and who are experiencing loss because in our culture by and large, I think that we are taught that either we'll just get over it. Don't worry about it. It'll just pass away of its own, you know, um, time. And, and there's some truth to that, that time helps or we talk about it. And while talking can be hugely helpful and affirming and cathartic, sometimes you can't talk about it. The emotions are just too overwhelming. Or the talking about it makes logical, intellectual sense, but it doesn't sink into the place where we really live, mm-hmm. which is in our bodies. Yeah, no, I, I think that's that's true, that... that talking right talking instead of the thing that people kind of almost reflexively think that's the important thing like make sure you're talking about it processing it with somebody having friends to talk about it with but as you're as you're mentioning that the the how it lodges in the body how it um kind of activates and engages with the nervous system and the and the the fascia of the body i think uh has a lot to to offer in terms of how we want to, to to metabolize and process these these kinds of experiences. But before maybe going into uh, the specifics of your work and um, kind of how you've you found your 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 training in somatic experiencing um, or somatic practice to help you navigate this tremendous loss, I know um, listeners may not be totally familiar with kind of who Michael was. Um, I, I try to give a sense of that in an episode shortly after he passed um, called The Dharma of Michael Brooks. But I thought, I, I kind of been holding off on on getting into uh, kind of a, a, a portrayal of Michael um, until you came on, because I thought, I, I, th- I really think your your perspective on him will will be helpful. Um, but how, how, how do you see your, your son now, um, you know, in terms of what his, his mission or his Dharma or his, his role in, in his life was, if, if you can speak about it like that. I think it's a real tragedy, not just for me, but for the world that Michael passed. I think he had, um, an extremely vast and unusual capacity to not just synthesize knowledge from a lot of different areas, different arenas, but he had a lot of heart to do it with. Mm -hmm. So he was a person who was really formulating a a blueprint, uh, a blueprint that was philosophical, philosophical and actionable blueprint to really work with transforming the limitations of our world into something systemic that that could be really full of justice and fairness and um, eliminate poverty. And I know that sounds really big, but 
Uh, Michael was so young, he was 36, I think by 56 or 66, he really would have been a grand, grand thinker. Mm-hmm. And again, not just a thinker, but um, a certainly years of meditation and practicing Qigong, doing sports, doing kettlebells, those kind of things brought him into his body. He knew from my work how important it was to be in his body. And also he was very committed to the psychological and spiritual dimensions of life, which meant recovering recovering from trauma, which I'll go on to talk about. But where there have been bumps or upsets, which could be, you know, as mild as encountering, you know, something that's unpleasant when you're a child that you had to learn to live with to growing up in a war zone or being held prisoner, whatever it is that causes us to tighten up and numb out parts of ourselves and fixate on other parts of ourselves. Michael was really aware that human beings needed to heal those places. So his work was both very much looking at the systems that we take for granted that we live underneath and also really just really developing our personal agency. Yeah. So to give with Michael, I, you know, I met Michael on my first silent meditation retreat at the insight meditation society. Um, And he was, I believe 18 years old when I met him and he hadn't gone to college yet. He was, I think, looking into going to college at the time and but he was clearly this, this macro thinker. He was passionate about politics. He was passionate about comedy and he was passionate about spirituality and um, kind of witnessing him develop through his going through college, going to debates and, and study. Did he study international affairs or, or international yeah, politics? He studied international relations at Bates. Um, yeah. And then, you know, it, it, for a while he and I were really, thinking about moving together into kind of the, I don't know how to quite to say it, corporate wellness doesn't quite do it justice, but he was envisioning a a kind of a um, a strategic consultancy that involved mindfulness practice and, and overcoming cognitive bias with my uh, mindfulness practice. Um, We, and that was sort of the basis of our, our little, our book, the the Buddhist playbook. Um, But he, we didn't end up getting into that, going down that road too far. Um, but he, he around that time then pivoted, or I think really continued on with his main, uh, path, which is not just politics, but, um, offering this sort of exp- a, a kind of a pundits level, um, analysis of politics with an infusion of, as you're saying, a kind of the spiritual heart. And, um, this is something that I, really came to appreciate um, kind of only recently in the last few years I, that I got a sense of how um, how big his role and platform had become. Um, and I would say even I didn't have much sense of that until after he passed, how just how big his platform mm-hmm. had become. But he he had a kind of message, which I, I I can't quite articulate well myself, but I'm wondering if you can say a little bit more about that, that he was able to, I mean, he amassed a huge following worldwide. And when he passed, there was definitely this 
this massive worldwide outpouring of, of, of collective grief that, um, that there was this precious voice um, on the left with a kind of a newer take on, on progressive politics that, um, that many saw as, as, a, as, the, as the next wave, I would say. Um, and, and his loss was just was felt so profoundly because of, of the, the kind of the, the lack of leadership the the vacuum of leadership that that he was leaving. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Does that sound right? Yes. And Michael, again, was just an incredibly gifted and holistic person. I mean, he was, you know, there were people approaching him about running for office himself. There were people who wanted to do political strategy with him. Um, Someone else was talking to him about maybe some kind of visiting professorship. Uh, He had some people in Los Angeles that wanted to pitch uh, like a cartoon educational show with some of his characters. So there was a lot on the table of where Michael could have gone with moving this whole project forward. That's what he referred to it was as as a project, Um, the project of a new left. Because, you know, as you may know, Michael really uh, wanted to win. He was not so interested in being, you know, um, the right, you know, being correct about everything. He was, but he really wanted to win. So he really needed the left to be able to take an approach that would win. And that sounds kind of crassly political. And certainly, you know, you have to operate on that field if you're going to do political strategy. But what it also meant for Michael, um, and I'm actually going to quote just a listener, mm-hmm. that Michael, in a nutshell, is a t- is total grasp of a subject, an ability to analyze it that allows access to everyone. And that was so important because Michael could take very kind of you know, ideas and situations that different academics would struggle over and ruminate, different pundits would talk about and different people would write about it. And he would be able to analyze that in a way that allowed access to everyone with compassion, Mm -hmm. understanding and a rounded view. He not only understands the contradictory views to his own, Um, But he is able to shred them while displaying that understanding. And all through this, his irrepressible humor bubbles up. So he was an entertainer. You know, uh, Josh, one of the things Michael did, um, I don't know if it was around the same time you and him were hanging out in Boston, maybe a little bit before that, but him and some friends out in Western Massachusetts were doing stand-up. You know, they did some bars and they had um, some college gigs in the Boston area. And definitely he had that kind of really intense, sharp wit and he cracked people up and he could still teach as an entertainer. The loss Mm. is incomparable. May his spirit soar. Another, um, couple of people that Michael, so Michael was also a nurturer and, uh, really supported left-wing voices who maybe didn't have, um, the charisma of his, or maybe he still did get some some uh, airtime and visibility because he you know, was a white heterosexual guy. And instead of just talking about race or gender diversity, Michael really sought out 
people who had really smart messages who, you know, maybe their appearance on camera didn't lend to people wanting to put them on the show because they didn't really know how to dress or smile for the camera. He put them on the show. He really wanted to empower African-American voices. So he would find um, black guys or women who who really had something to share that he wanted to see them move ahead on his platform. Um, So he had that kind of caring for others. And uh, two other things I'll share, his his, uh, PT, who was kind of a, a very sophisticated PT who did really wonderful body work in Brooklyn, told me that as soon as he walked into her office, she knew he was a healer. And she thought that whenever he was doing his broadcast, what he was actually doing was touching people at such a core that they could open up to deeper ways of being in themselves. And how that may have reflected is how many young men Michael attracted who told him, you know, I was really way down deep into right-wing podcasts, misogynist stuff, anti-Semitic stuff, racist stuff really into the intellectual dark web as a way to justify all that. And you pulled me out of that. Mm-hmm. And he did it with clarity and with humor. Um, and so this idea of him having some quality of, of healing work as well with what he was doing, he just was a very extremely layered, nuanced complex person who was grounding it all to really try to work for betterment in the world. Since he was a young person, he was always interested in the hero's journey of those people who stood up to a status quo, a system that was oppressing most people and had some wins in standing up to that. Yeah. No, you're just listening to it. it, it, It's all so vivid to me. Um, The the, the multi-layered, complex, deep, profoundly hilarious (laughs) genius mind. And, you know, he, he, more than one occasion he would, and I know I've heard other of his friends mention this, but, you know, he could, he could essentially mock the hell out of you to your face, but in a way that was loving (laughs) And absolutely hilarious. I was in tears laughing, being made fun of, you know, and that's it, it's a very rare combination to, to, to hit that, that balance, right? Um, you know, I think when, when I was hanging out with him a lot and we were writing the Buddhist playbook, um, it was around the financial crash in 2008, 2009. And his career hadn't really taken off at that point. He was just coming out of college and trying to, kind of plant his seeds. And I, I had had a major sort of financial bump in my own life at that point, um, just with the financial crisis and some, some transitions in a, in a work environment, I, my own income dramatically shrunk up. And, um, and so we were kind of skating on thin ice, trying to get, get, get some things started together. Um, but it, it really seemed like to me, after that time that he and I were working together, he, I think he went back to the Valley where he grew up and, and did some serious psychological work, um, at a time that, 
um, you know, maybe some people don't, don't even think about doing that kind of work, but he seemed like he, I got the sense that he confronted some things within him. And you mentioned trauma. And I was wondering if this, if you had that sense too, that there was something about that period at the end of the aughts that um, I think he dove deeply into his, himself and his kind of his outstanding traumas or difficulties from that he experienced growing up. Um, and there's something about that work he did that transformed him to the, to, to turn him into the person he became, which had this huge impact. I'm not sure he would have had that impact to the same degree. Had he not done the work? This is just purely speculation. Oh, absolutely. On my part. But, no, absolutely. Because there is, and, and I, and I, and I, you mentioned the hero's journey and I think, in a way, I think he confronted his own underworld, something that I've, I myself, I feel like I, I, I got through um, the last few years myself. Um, but there was, I could see in him that there was a, like in the Jungian sense of individuation, that when he was, when his show got started, when he got on the, on the Sam Cedar show, the majority report, that there was, um, this was a person that I had seen grown tremendously from the time that we were hanging out and, um, and, I just think that's a part of the story that anyone listening and any of his followers, uh, are, it's important to know about that because in, in some levels, it's just inspiring. It's, it's inspiring as hell. Like he, he was able to do so much and I saw how far he came from, uh, to, uh, what he had to overcome to get there. Do you have any take on that or perspective on that? Um, yeah, you know, that hero's journey kind of mythic quest thing, that was also really something that um, Michael Michael just had from an early age. Like he was always interested in that. And um, yeah, I mean, things were definitely challenging um, when my kids were growing up. And, you know, Michael's dad died this summer suddenly as well. And I right. think L- that literally, literally, I mentioned this with my, in a conversation with Bob Wright um, recently um, that Michael's dad died the week of the, the, the celebration of the memorial. Was it a few days before? Yeah, it was about, a, about five days before. And uh, my, you know, my daughter found his body, which was oh. just awful. But, but the thing is, um, so, you know, I was a hip, I was such a hippie kid and I met Michael's dad and he was so unusual and so different and so charismatic. I just really fell in love. It took me years around the same time that Michael started really investing in his own mental health was the time that I left his father. Mm-hmm. And in leaving his father, I could, for the first time, acknowledge what actually Michael asked me when he was ten years older, and that ten years old, and that is, his dad mentally ill. And so we had a lot of poverty, but um, grow when my kids were growing up, I basically had to stay home with my kids. He, he, their dad really wasn't tuned into this plane, this world, this level, and it was very confusing because he was very intelligent, a very creative, um, definitely where Michael got some of that broad expanse of being able to pull wildly diversion things together was from his dad. Mm -hmm. But his dad had some undiagnosed mental illness. And Michael knew, I mean, this was like a trauma. Michael knew when he was a kid and I was in complete denial about it. 
And to his father's deathbed, he was in denial about it. He, you know, still very much felt like he was a victim of the world. Um, so yes, I would say that was a super pivotal time because I think that finally, you know, and I'm not proud of only <laughs> having been able to do this as my children were older, but um, I was finally able to say to him, like, yes, your experience is totally valid. Mm. And this, these experiences that you had, that your sister had, that all of us had, um, shouldn't have happened, you know, really. I mean, you can't say it shouldn't have happened because who knows in the big picture, but they would have been avoidable potentially with medication and treatment um, or with, you know, my having put my foot down about it sooner. And I think that really, so he'd all, he'd been a spiritual quester before then, you know, he was, um, he remember when he was like 12 or something, he went and did Kundalini yoga. Um, he started meditating, you know, at Barry going to the young adults retreats, I think at 13, he went to native American sweat lodges. So he was a spiritual seeker, but yes, there was something about saying like, oh my God, you're not misperceiving. This was really unhinged that allowed him to deal with the psychological dimension. And it was yeah. many years and it was still in, in process. You know, he, I don't think he arrived at any end point, but I do think he arrived at a point where he could see like, okay, like there's a lot of stuff behind me. Now I can actually still keep delving into my psyche to have more power, personal power. Right. As you said all that, I, I was feeling back through the early years of my friendship with him. And I don't think we were fully, either one of us were fully conscious of it at the time. But but in the course of our friendship, we I think we did become aware that one of the binding uh, elements in our friendship was a shared experience growing up of of having a father that you know, like, like his dad, Glenn was, was so like creative and inspiring and charismatic in some ways. Like that was very much my, like way my dad is too, very, very sharp mind, but with some, some real dysfunctional challenges around organization and delivery and, and just um, kind of operationalizing one's work to support, uh, have a stable support for a family. So I think we both had 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 a lot of uh, shared overlap with just a kind of a semi chaotic upbringing um, around a, a father figure that was was struggling and, and just in, in 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 having a real challenge. And um, I was ten years older than Michael, and I think when he met me, in a way, I feel like he actually looked at me like a little bit of an older brother, someone who's maybe figured out a, a few more steps on the process of overcoming that kind of an upbringing. And I, I, I always sensed that he was looking for models and, and, and pathways for, for integrating and overcoming that kind of, of a big beginning. Um, but I really sensed that, that when he went back to the Valley before he went, moved to New York, that that's when he, he really dove dove into it deeply. Um, did, did did he share with you much about his work at that time? The inner work that he was um, doing. Well, he started working with a with a woman who did um, like I guess it was a bit Jungian. Um, it was sort of a combination of counseling and energy healing. 
Um, you know, she she did, I don't know if your listeners know any of this stuff, but she did Barbara Brennan work and there was something called Old Souls Kabbalah she did. Um, but it was very much grounded in addressing the wound. Yeah. Um, and he worked with her. He also worked with another psychotherapist um, who was more of a conventional psychotherapist, but a man in the valley and worked on, you know, what is it to be a man when you have a dad that maybe isn't a role model you want to emulate? Mm-hmm. Um, and he also um, he also definitely did a little bit of work like that with some of the folks around Barry. And then when he moved to New York, he worked with another woman who also um, had I. I uh, I don't know how to describe it, except she also definitely wanted to address the trauma. Um, it's interesting having spoken with him about these different people's impact on his life and um, how they each all had their own kind of what he thought were biases and blind spots. Um and so that was part of his struggle too. Actually, Michael's kind of macro, as you said, vision. He would be like, okay, like, all right, if I'm supposed to be like all chill and everything, and that's like good for my nervous system and helps me to process all this stress around dad, but what about my ambition? Why am I yeah. not being encouraged by ambition? You know, he like, it's it's interesting. He was um and he was also able to put together pieces he would get from varied practitioners into a mosaic. Yeah, well, that was, and that was, I'm sure uh, any discussion of Michael at some point leads to the to the work of Ken Wilber, who is an influential theorist that to me and to both yeah. me and Michael. But Ken's Ken's model is a, called the Integral Theory model, and it, it's it's attempt to to take the best of, of multiple uh, forms of knowledge, multiple forms of practice, multiple forms of therapy, um, and, 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 and uh, integrating them into, a, as you say, a kind of a mosaic integrated um, approach to viewing the world and engaging with the world. Uh, and I think it sounds like Michael had that within his own therapeutic process. Definitely. Definitely. Michael was never uh kind of like an end of the road person like this is it i found it you know i have all the answers and you know he liked diversity i was just thinking uh the other day um you know i'm i'm actually struggling with a friend of mine who's gone off into conspiracy land Mm. and i was thinking about um it's a little bit of a jump but i was thinking about what michael was reading you know before he died so he's reading this German modern philosopher, Schloderdijk, who I don't know much about, except that family friends, um, our, my friend Christian is German and he is a philosopher and I love Schloderdijk. So Michael grew up kind of hearing this name, but um, he was reading him. And then he was also reading um, Gepsner or Gepser, who is an integral thinker. And yeah. then he was reading someone he reviled, but he was still reading his book, Henry Kissinger on China. Mm-hmm. And he was also reading like a kind of pulp book, not fiction, it's supposedly a true story, but how 
the CIA used Charles Manson to infiltrate the hippie movement. So, <laughs> broad, wide, and deep. Broad, wide, and deep reading. I mean, there were probably a couple other books like he was reading too that I didn't know about, you know, but. <laughs> Because <laughs> he right. would he would even come from Brooklyn to Western Massachusetts and he'd have one bag full of like, you know, his clothing and his toothbrush and you know, whatever, socks, maybe a pair of change of shoes. And then he'd have another like enormous backpack with like six or seven books in it. Because that's what he'd want to do. He'd want to just like make tea, have nice meals, and read. And you know, he'd be pulling books off my bookshelf too. Maybe he'd go to the bookstore and buy a book. So there'd be all these books he was just kind of taking pieces of and enjoying. Right, and and, <laughs> and, and you know, and just to, it's worth mentioning that uh, I know this when we had a, a a conversation, shared conversation with Bob Wright about this just after he passed. You mentioned that he was he was late to read in life. Mm-hmm. Like he started reading what when he was nine or 10 or even older yeah 10 or 11 yeah like we were you know in my complete hippie dumbness and then with someone who his father just hated any kind of structure or authority so we homeschooled and um which had its negative and positive things but you know michael just wasn't interested in reading like he just liked being outside and climbing on things and you know just making forts or whatever so he always loved being read too, but he had no interest in reading. Um, and, you know, the people I consulted with were like, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. He'll read when he's ready. And he did. He, uh, I don't even know. I think I did take him to uh, a friend of mine who was a reading teacher. Yes. And he read Cloudy with the Chance of Meatballs. Like, I don't know what you do with him, but he read Cloudy with the Chance of Meatballs, which is like, you know, a first grade book. And he's like 10 or 11. But then within a week, he was reading the uh, Redwall series, which he loved, you know, about these like dramatic mice. It's like mm-hmm. it's like rats storming an abbey and the mice. <laughs> but it's it's a much it's probably written for his age group, you know, so written for like 11, 12 year olds. So he just took off. And then, I don't know, a year or two after that, he was reading like autobiography of Malcolm X and. And, yeah, uh, no, he he just yeah, yeah. dove dove in and made up for lost time. Yeah, totally. You know, as we're totally as we're talking as we're talking, you know it 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 occurs to me that you, you can't, we can't talk about Michael very long before I, I hear and feel a, a strong energy of joy of just thinking mm-hmm. about him. You know that he was such an exuberantly fun, loving, wise guy. Um, and you know, as sad as it is for me to, to realize, to know that he's not here, I I'm also overwhelmed with a sense of gratitude that I just got to know him, that I was, I was one of the lucky ones that was able to know him mm-hmm. as well as I did. And, um, I mean, if anything, there's a little bit of survivor kind of slash shame slash, um, guilt or something that, you know, he should be here now. Um, but do you want to say I anything think about what that? you're. Yeah, I think what you're pointing to is a really important, um, a really important thing, because when someone dies or we have some other kind of really dramatic or traumatic loss, the feeling is like, oh my God, life is over. 
you know, I'm, I'm going to die. And honestly, when Michael died, I Googled what happens to a parent after a child dies. And, you know, it's pretty bleak. Mm-hmm. Cancer rates, um, raise, divorce rates, alcohol and drug abuse rates. There's a high probability of someone dying within three years of their child dying. And I was like, whoa, this is not a good, you know, indication for the rest of my life. And I just felt so terrible that, okay, I guess this is what it's going to be. And um, I started reading, you know, I couldn't read any books about grief. I cannot tell you how many people gave me books about grief. And there's only one I could stand. Mm. And it wasn't even about death. It was about all kinds of loss. It was called something completely incongruent, the smell of rain on dust. Oh, wow. And, uh, And it's like something about a story about grief and praise. And he is like, I don't know if he's an anthropologist or just studies a lot of indigenous cultures. I think he considers himself a shaman. I don't know what his training is. I don't know really anything about the author, except that he very quickly persuaded me that as human beings, grief and praise are the same thing, or grief and joy, grief and this kind of celebration that you're describing. Like it is so tragic and so terrible that Michael's gone. And yet there's this joy that he was here and Mm -hmm. who he was and what he's left in his wake. And I think that after I read that book, I thought like, oh, part of why we have such a kind of, I'll call it a chronic grief and loss response is because we don't we don't in our world up till now maybe covid is changing this maybe i'm sure climate is changing this you know climate change we've skated along at least if we're in america and we're you know white middle class we're in you know europe australia we've pretty much skated along without having to meet a lot of loss there are individuals here and there who have had terrible loss. You know, some parents died when they were young or dread diseases ravaging their bodies. But it's very different from how most people lived on this planet where grief came regularly. And that ability to meet grief was really cultivated in people's bodies. They sang, they cried, they danced, they raged, and it was just normal. Where we think grief is this big, horrible thing that either we talk about or we don't talk about. And our culture doesn't really have very much bandwidth for meeting grief through yeah, just, our just physicality. To- to add, just to echo onto that or add onto that, you know, we either talk about it or we don't talk about it, or the assumption is either you've processed it or you haven't processed it. <laughs> like there's sort of this binary with it. Like either you're you've you've integrated it and you're good now, or you're still in the throes of it and you just need space. You need to be let alone to 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 to, to continue to work through it. But it, um, it for me, and I'm curious to hear what what your side of this is like. But for me this is just, it's an ongoing thing. It's a daily thing. 
it's it's part Absolutely. of you know it's Absolutely. it's you know I was meditating this morning and knowing that I was talking to you I had a succession of flashbacks to meditating with Michael while we were writing the book and the kind of the energy that we were sharing together and 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 committed to and um it's something that just doesn't leave you um and and I think you're I think you're definitely right that we we as uh, kind of in the the developed world, we have a denial of it and we have a, a compartmentalized annexation of it that um, is really a disservice. Um, I actually, I was in my Dharma talk I gave last night, I pulled out a little passage from Chogyam Trungpa that he says, when we deny impermanence, we're imprisoned by it. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it, it just, I think that speaks to this, this, this cultural issue um, that, that um, I think, so many people are facing right now, but we, we were kind of lacking tools or skill sets for cult- culturally and individually on how to, how to navigate it. Um, so on, I, I can't imagine what the first half a year or more has been like for you, but um, I know in, in preparing for this conversation, we were talking a little bit offline and you said you had a very different response to the grief than than your daughter alicia and i thought that maybe like an might be an, a point to open up how people respond to grief or how people handle grief and then and then what might be some of the pathways of integration that your work as a therapist yoga therapist somatic movement therapist has to provide well i think because i have so much education in understanding the body mind system I started thinking like, okay, like really what is grief? And I decided, and some people have decided this along with me and some people don't see it this way, that grief, at least grief, how I experienced it, which was very sudden and shocking, is really a trauma response. And so what happens if we're going to, you know, look at it through polyvagal theory, which is, let's say, an innovative way of looking at our brain and our nervous system, that when the organism, because it could be human or animal, has uh, some kind of trauma, there are protective mechanisms in the body that we go to. Mm -hmm. So for me, um, I went into what they would call freeze. So when you go into freeze, it's more of like a kind of shutdown mode. Um, And even before I was in the full freeze, I literally collapsed. So for those people who are interested in this kind of thing, collapse is kind of a dysfunctional parasympathetic system. Right. So parasympathetic is usually heralded in our culture. It's like, oh, parasympathetic, so great. You know, you're in parasympathetic, you rest and digest. And that's true and that's great. And mostly people are more hassled and bothered and tense and definitely ignore or shut down that parasympathetic. But I really collapsed. I just, the ground gave out from underneath me. I was on the floor. My muscles didn't have tone. Um, I'm sure my blood pressure dropped because I felt like I just, 
I just couldn't cope. Um, it's I, just I, this. I, yeah, I have this image of just a, a soul being swallowed up, swallowed whole, kind of. It, you're it swallowed just, by it. I never had had an experience like that before. I mean, I don't think I've ever fainted even in my life, you know, from like loss of blood or low blood sugar or something. Um, and then that passed fairly quickly. And I just was more in a place of what a classic freeze is, which is a very confusing state when we talk about the nervous system, because there's both sympathetic and parasympathetic activation in it. And I started to get, you know, panicky. Um, my heart rate definitely, um, went up. Um, but I still felt this kind of disassociation, like it wasn't really me, a kind of numbness, um, almost like I was preparing for death too. Mm. And I think that's what the kind of classic image of freezes is that a cat catches a mouse, the mouse freezes because he's literally preparing to be eaten. And um, there's some um, information out there, I don't know how well proven it is, that when we're freezing and going numb, yes, you're not going to feel the pain of that cat's, you know, teeth digging mm -hmm. into your body. The and so, yes. So that was my, um, my state, you know, I wasn't like entirely in a freeze. I wasn't entirely a mouse in a cat's mouth, but that feeling of numbness and disassociation lasted for quite a while. And as an embodiment person, as a somatic person, um, I, you know, because sometimes people around you, they mean well, but they're like, oh my God, you know, you better get a medication for that. Or, you know, you better go see, I remember I went to go see one body worker because people were offering me body work, which was wonderful. But, you know, she very much wanted to get me out of that state um seeing it as like a wrong state to be in like something mm -hmm. was wrong but in the wisdom of my own body i knew that i needed to be in that state because honestly if i wasn't in that state uh there's no way i would have had you know i needed numbness and of course this is a problem if it goes on for a long time but in the natural course of things if we can meet it, let it protect us and meet it, it will transform into something else. You know, that's, that's a, just a, such an interesting um, idea and in, 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 in the therapeutic discourse, I think, because and even in the, in, I would say in, in meditation discourse too, there's, there's a kind of a, 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 a I don't know, an overly therapized approach is the right language for this, but there's a, I think what you're saying is that some, some people within this world feel like if, if you're, if you're not, if you're really profoundly dysfunctional, if you're in a dysfunctional state, either you can't, you just can't function because you're, you're numb, that, that there's somehow that's dissociative and, and implicitly bad. Um, and, and yes. you need to be therapized into a, a better state where you're more functional. But I think, I've often wondered if there's, you know, a functional role, I guess, 
in, for that quote unquote dysfunctional tremendously state. functional, tremendously functional. Um, but then we get into this little thing, like going back into other cultures that aren't our kind of modern, you know, take care of everything, put it in a box, seal it kind of culture. In other cultures, you're held by your community. Right. So that holding, so you're not in the cat's mouth anymore. You're on the ground, but you're still terrified. But let's say, I know this isn't exactly true, but let's say all your other little nice friends come and gather around you. Yeah, the, the, there's presence. a circle of circle of mice with I can see it. <laughs> <laughs> and and they don't have to say, come on, get out of the freeze, you know, or come on, we're gonna go take you to, you know, uh the so-and-so therapist, talk therapist or body work or whatever, and they'll get you out of this freeze. Like, yeah, if a lot of time goes by and a person doesn't come out of freeze, then you do need something. But in the beginning, I feel like what you just need is physical presence and care. And it's very hard for people in our culture to just trust that just their being there and not doing anything to you or for you is what you need. We right. all think we have to do rather than just be, or we think we have to be in a certain way, you know, right. like, like thinking about meditation, like, is it okay for Josh to just show up and be, or if someone dies, does Josh have to show up and be in his most highest meditative state, you know? Right. Right. Um, you know, I think, I think what you're naming is, is yeah, is a, is a strand, a big strand in at least the culture that I'm familiar with, where if someone's in distress, if someone's having a problem and you care for them, caring is, is collaborating with them to fix it. Yes. And, yes. and this is something, there's some things that don't, are not amenable or, or not, <laughs> they don't, they're not fixed in the explicit direct way. We often think that, that we want to try to help around. And, um, I think what you're, and, and, what yeah. you're mentioning though, is just the, the bearing presence, um, to the person's grief and, 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 and holding a container or creating a space for which they can experience their grief um, but again, a, more of a collective sense of there may be food brought or just a physical mm -hmm. presence while that person's going through it, I think is huge. And, and we are, we do lack that now We're we're much more isolated and particularly under COVID. Um, yes. Yes. Isolated. And Michael did die under COVID and right. I missed that a lot. And I knew though, that the freeze was protecting me. Mm -hmm. And I also knew that in the absence of community, and not everyone has this resource. I acknowledge it. This is years of my own work, but I knew I was still alive. And mm -hmm. so, you know, again, like if the mouse is stunned, maybe it doesn't even know if it's alive yet or not. And certainly that's what it found, felt like in the beginning. But as the freeze started to thaw, I knew I was alive. And I, and the little places where I experienced the warmth of my own blood, <laughs> that was meeting the freeze at a level. And maybe that sounds a little abstract, but it, I was going to say, yeah, was, can you give a concrete, I mean, that's, that's such a poetic way of yeah. describing it. The freeze meeting your, your warm blood. Well, okay. So um, a simple thing is just 
if there's a place in your body right now where you feel kind of gripped and held and you just bring your hand to that place in your body and everyone can do this as they're listening Mm -hmm. and and your hand is in that place of your body and you could feel the body through your hand can you feel your hand through that place of your on your body in your body and does feeling your hand change the feeling of being gripped and held and the feeling of gripped and held is that you, can you say a little bit more about that is that a, it's like a, a hard tension or a, a guarding mechanism yeah you know i think the closest thing um for me pictorially and i think pictures often help us enter into our experience in our body is ice So when you think about ice, it's not having to work to be solid. It's just frozen. Mm -hmm. So it's different than kind of like, oh, yeah, I can feel, you know, I've been chopping wood and my neck is really tight. and I got to, you know, put some heat on it or get massaged or whatever. This is more like a part of you that you can locate in your body if it's physically, you know, I don't know if it's happening under the microscope, but your experience is that there's a numbness, a disassociation, an ice-like quality. Mm-hmm. And, and were you doing this like sort of in a self-administered way? Um, yeah, I, I was like very gingerly. I, I'm curious if you felt anything with that little... Exercise. Yeah, so I went to my neck and um, where I have some chronic, I've had some old trauma in my neck and um, it's kind of chronic, chronic tension at times. And I just let my the fingers of my right hand touch the side of my neck. And it, as you're ta- as you're talking me through it, it, again, this is part of the, tr- the challenging piece. Is like I, I have the I'm having the experience, and then the question is how to put that experience into words. Yeah. Um, it was, I mean, not to, and, and, and the words always, in my view, <laughs> often are, are inadequate to the experience um, and even cliche to the experience, but there, it was just, I felt, if I were to put, I guess I would say, I would, I would articulate it as I felt a presence of care to the area, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and it, mm-hmm. I want to imagine that there was some softness in the, in the, in the, in the tension. Um, but it was more, it was more like a loving light of touch or a loving t- touch of lightness, like a, literally a light kind of, kind of coming into and the I area. think, I think that's a good bridge to blood because I think blood is, you know, our humanity blood is kind of our water of life in our body and it emanates from our heart. And our hands carry that emanation too. So the idea of administering care, administering warmth, mm-hmm. that starts to thaw the freeze. And mm-hmm. certainly that's what happens when people who are around you care about you. You know, again, if they're not being overbearing, like I care about you and we're going to fix this. Um, but if they just come and offer their warmth and in the absence of community or just multiplying the effect of community, are there experiential ways you can offer yourself warmth? Mm-hmm. And is, um, so this is, I, I imagine this is you know, dramatically 
influenced um, kind of how you're thinking about your role as a yoga therapist. Have you have you uh, shifted to focusing more on grief in, in, well, in the last year, or is that sort of an yes ongoing development? and no? I mean, I think as a yoga and movement therapist, what has happened generally is, you know, I work with people with Parkinson's. There's a grief in that. Um, I've worked with a lot of people with chronic pain. (laughs) There's a grief in that. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, what potentially has shifted is even more attention to cultivating resilience in the nervous system. And how is that? Because I, I know you, you'd spoken a little bit about polyvagal theory and, and trauma and, and, and its relationship to grief. And a few questions that are outstanding for me is you, I think you made this made, mentioned that some people don't see grief or like losing someone to death as a trauma. And that, that, that kind of struck me as a curious thing. Like, why would they not classify losing uh, a dear loved one as a, as a kind of trauma? What, what do they say about that? I think the, the um, difference is that a trauma kind of doesn't go away or doesn't, you know, a trauma is that you might feel a numbness and a loss of interest. and you know, it's um, it's related to something that happened in your childhood, and you just kind of are always walking around like that. Hmm. Where a grief may look like a trauma in the beginning, but then it kind of lights up a little bit, or you move in and out of it. Um, I think that there's probably an agreement that in the beginning of a sudden death or a sudden loss because it could be you know you lost your job like you use you lose your identity you know it's something i think i think a broader way of looking at trauma is that you're really being exposed to something that's outside of the realm of your normal experience that gives you extraordinary stress yeah i'm thinking of a, a quick quick definition that i i um got from judith blackstone who described trauma mm-hmm. as any any experience that can't be fully integrated at the time. That's um, beautiful. That's beautiful. And there's, you know, not everyone ag- would potentially agree with that. Right. Um, from a clinical point of view. Um, but practically, I think that's brilliant. Mm-hmm. So um what are, i hate to use the word toolbox what are some of the tools as a yoga therapist um somatic therapist that, that you find uh applicable and helpful for uh navigating this terrain well what is important is that you're able to enter into the experience of your body accepting your body where it is and how it is So sometimes for um, extreme freeze, people don't want to move. So you can meet not wanting to move by creating a space where the person is held and help them start to feel that they're held by gravity, for instance. So this is another place where I think our um, society really gets it wrong 
Um, and part of that is that we're we're not on the earth, so we don't really feel our connection to the earth except, you know, abstractly. But gravity is a force that exerts itself on all of us, and we can surrender into the experience of gravity and in that feel a bonding and a connection with the earth. And that helps us know we're here, and in knowing we're here, that really helps release some of this um, freeze response. I'm curious what that looks like in in the actuality of doing it. Is is this a scenario where someone would be kind of lying on the on the ground um, in kind of like a yoga version of shavasana, and having maybe a guided mm-hmm. guided meditation yeah, or guided experience? So. For, for feeling the, yes. the, the gravitational yes. pull? And... Yes, very much so. That's often how we start. You don't have to be on your back. You know, sometimes that um, curling up into fetal position is also really nourishing. That's very supportive to your healthy parasympathetic hmm. and or even being on your belly if that doesn't hurt your back. And um, the thing is that you get the experience. Yes, what I do a lot with people is I help them have these experiences, like let's say bonding with gravity, being supported by gravity. But then the trick is to walk away with that, not as knowledge, but as something that you know you have in your body. You're walking bonded into the earth. You're walking with gravity supporting you. Um, yeah. So that's... Mm-hmm. I'm just, I'm curious on how um, I'm kind of trying to visualize, imagine myself in, in this kind of an exercise um, and, and then what it might, what might transpose from the exercise into moving beyond the exercise. Um, well, this is, yes. So this is, so we can kind of look at the nervous system a little bit more. So um, a healthy parasympathetic so we were talking about freeze as collapse which is you know very um let's say dysregulated or Mm -hmm. or emergency we'll say emergency emergency use of the parasympathetic and then the freeze thing being a combination of sympathetic which we haven't gotten to yet and parasympathetic um and that also being a protective mechanism so basically in freeze, you don't really want to move. So you're numb. Maybe you can't move. It's like when people, you know, you've probably had people come to your class and you're giving instructions and they seem like so simple, but they can't follow them. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's almost like they just, you know, and they just will say like, oh, well, I've never been athletic. Well, it's not, it could be that they've never been athletic, but it's often that there's a numbness or a disassociation going on. Mm-hmm. So turning that into a more positive parasympathetic through rest, through gravity. And then from a rested parasympathetic, you're going to find impulse to move into sympathetic. So sympathetic is the next, you know, level up the chain. And in, and we talked about Leisha before that she had a different response to me. She went more fully into fight and flight. So fight and flight is pure sympathetic activation. And it's what most people actually experience on a low level every day when they're driving in traffic or, you know, having stresses with their boss. It's high blood pressure. It's your heart rate going up, adrenaline surging. 
it's um, dilation of, of your bronchi, it, it kind of shuts down your digestion, you know, because you're getting all your muscles get tensed, you're getting all poised to either kill a dragon or a tiger or run away from a dragon or a tiger. So mm-hmm. death or loss, you know, your boss could be that tiger. And it can cause a lot of rage, a lot of anger, a lot of irritation. It can more when you're in flight, it's more like panic, you know, like anxiety, like, oh, my God, I got to get away from this. But it's sympathetic activation in the protective mode. And how you deal with that is different than freeze, but it's a response to a trauma or anything that's out of your control. But there's just, also can I just interrupt, healthy. Interrupt. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, sorry, sorry to interrupt. I just want to clarify something because it's, it's. I realize it's a little fuzzy in my head. Um, yeah. I always thought the the freeze response was part of the sympathetic fight or flight freeze. I thought those those three Fs were, were grouped together. And and I'm curious on how you're you're associating the the freeze uh, response with with a kind of dysfunctional parasympathetic state it sounds like the collapse the, the collapse. collapse is the freeze itself has both sympathetic and parasympathetic um aspects yes because the there's like a sympathetic like you'll usually like think about think about if you were like i don't know if this ever happened to you, but i was taking money out of my mother's wallet once when she came home and i froze you know, I had the total freeze response because, you know, obviously I was going to get in a lot of trouble. So I had the increased heart rate of sympathetic. My sympathetic was really, you know, oh, my God, I got to get out of here. But I couldn't because she was going to walk into a room. Yeah. So but then I also had the disassociation, the numbness, that really vague feeling like like I couldn't really. I couldn't really move. Like I had to stay because that's another way that um, animals freeze in nature is they just freeze and hope they won't be seen. Right. right? I see. I I have the image of a trembling frozen mouse. Yeah. Quick quivering and and unable to move. Yes. So that has both sympathetic and parasympathetic activation collapse, which used to be just thought of as like, um, if you get, if you go in to have surgery and get anesthesia, like mm. that's, you know, that's complete shutdown really. Mm. And, okay. but in extreme emergencies, human beings just can have that. They can just faint. They can just um, like not have any muscle tone at all. Right. They just can't even comprehend what's happening. And that's, that is parasympathetic. Got it. Okay. That, no, that's, that, 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 uh, clarification is helpful. Um, now I'm trying to remember where I interrupted you at. You were, you were speaking. Yeah. Well, I was talking about fight and flight also being a a protective response to an emergency or, and unfortunately it gets very chronic because people are in situations all the time that feel like an emergency because it's so difficult and unfair and unpleasant. And that's where we have these, you know, chronic high blood pressures and, and uh, problems with digestion and, and circulation mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and diabetes. But there's also a, a healthy sympathetic. You know, sympathetic isn't all bad. Like sympathetic is the part of us where when we've had enough rest and digestion, we're curious. We're interested. It's like, oh, yeah, like 
someone sent me a card. I want to see that card. Mm -hmm. That's a healthy kind of um, sympathetic. And so you want to, if you're going to start with someone from freeze, and a lot of us have unconscious freezes we don't even know about. Um, and and you you can tell if you feel like numb and vague and like you're not in your body, that's probably a good sense that there's some freeze going on there. And then when you support the freeze, you might find some people will go into some anger and irritation, you know, or feel some kind of panic. And you can work with that with movement too. We all do that kind of naturally because how you do that is you motor, right? Like when you're really angry, doesn't it feel really good to hit something? Or if you're feeling really panicky and you go for a run, it helps with the panic. So your body has a mechanism for you to deal with fight and flight. And that is to go into action. Mm -hmm. And so, and, and, and from there in that fight or flight, if that, I mean, if the sympathetic the phrase I, I think I learned from one of my acupuncture teachers was like the idea of sympathetic dominance. Someone's in a sympathetically mm-hmm. dominant state. Um, mm-hmm. what, what sort of um, exercise slash therapeutic tool or tools help with help sort of tone that or, or, or rein that in? Or is that, is, is that, that even how you think about do. it? How do you think about that? Oh, I think it has to be expressed. I think fight and flight have to be expressed. Hmm. And um, I think that as children, we express it all the time. And as a matter of fact, tools of basic developmental movement help us really express our fight and flight. So, for instance, what I find with people who um, have fight and flight up and they're just kind of always like antsy, they're always like sort of irritated, maybe a little panicky, and it's just with them all the time, is pushing, like giving them enough. Um, feedback into their system so they feel like they can actually give me a good push. And there's ways of doing this that are very protective to everyone's bodies and proper ways to push. Um, Something else can be pulling a tug of war, you know, like how two people do a tug of war is an incredible way of working out fight and flight um, in community or with another person. It's very satisfying. Um, So so that's why Go ahead. No, it's so interesting. It's like these are these things I've never even thought of, um, but they, as you're describing them, they do sound like they're they're a, a, a kind of safe reenactment of the kinds of things we might have done in more of an ancestral space. Exactly. And when we just try to like, me- and so the meditation is a very interesting thing because sometimes meditation is calming enough that the kind of fight or flight can pass but other times people get incredibly annoyed and more agitated yeah because I, I mean yeah go ahead. Uh, you know it, when we started talking on this on this on this lane or this topic i was thinking oh you're going to talk about how the breath can calm the, the, the sympathetic nervous system or you know some, either breathing exercises or humming exercises or like postural work that creates embodied awareness that, that, that tones things down. But you're, 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 you're talking about a very different uh, angle that I, I w- was completely counterintuitive to me, but really does uh, seem to have um, 
to make sense now that I think about it. And fast, rapid breathing, you know, <laughs> like Kundalini breath. <laughs> Kundalini, is it Bastrika Pranayam that does that? Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Um, um, and sometimes, so the other thing with fight or flight is you're you're like really swamped with adrenaline and cortisol. So if you get a lot of circulation, like being aerobic, you'll wear down those chemicals more quickly. So mm-hmm. sometimes, I mean, it's it's really an art and it's about knowing yourself and perceiving others because if you're really trying to get someone to calm down through doing, you know, smooth, steady breaths and they really need to just get all that adrenaline out of their system, it's like it's much better for them to just go for a brisk walk. Mm-hmm. Right. And I so think not- that's really true when you lose someone and, you know, I know it's been disproven now, but when my kids were little, there was this book, like it was something like the stories of little tree. Did you have that when you were little? That doesn't ring a bell for me. What was it, it called? Was the stories of little tree. Yeah. Little, I think it was just called little tree. It was, it was apparently really written by a white supremacist, which is really weird because it was about this native American boy whose parents died and his grandparents come and collect him because they want to keep him out of like, you know, the school that would make him into a normal white kid. And he had to walk a really long way to get to his grandparents' house. And the line in the book was like, when you've lost something really dear, it's good to really tire yourself out. Hmm. And I think there's, I found that when I move more from fight and from freeze into fight and flight, the best thing for me was long bicycle rides. Hmm. Like that, that, because I couldn't meditate for months. And when I started meditating again, it was more like a yoga nidra than a meditation. Mm-hmm. And, um, but that, that exertion, like to really tire my body out because that's what would happen that would resolve fight and flight in the natural world. If you were an animal, you would either vanquish the tiger, you'd be dead, or you'd either get away from it or not. But either way, you would use up all that adrenaline, all that cortisol. You would, you know, make use of your rapid heart rate. You'd make use of the strength of your muscles. No, that makes sense. And I, I you were doing long bike rides. I think I was doing long, long walks, long mm-hmm. hikes. I would just go for mm-hmm. long hikes uh, last fall. And, um, and I didn't think of it like that, that, uh, that I was burning up all the stress hormones. Um, but it, I, 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 it was more. I think I just need time in my own head, away from everybody else, to, 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 to be with the intensity of these feelings and and emotions and and memories. Um, but I, I, yeah. I that, is, that is that is an interesting point, and I, I, I do think that there is a a view that maybe there's a one size fits all approach that that everyone should conform to. But I, I like the idea of a. A very good. You describe it as an art, really. That that that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, do you see that when working with? Are you working with people now, like individually mm-hmm. or one to one or in groups? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I work with people all the time. So, I, I, I find. Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say. So, are you seeing that the, that the, the the truth of that 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 kind of bespoke need to meet the individual. Um, through their process i'm sure it's uh, uh, this has to be an individual process but i'm just curious to hear a little bit about how you might meander through that with someone in in the kind of a creative sense well one of the most important things is is 
so this system gives our body wisdom because among other things, I mean, I'm not saying this is the end all be all, but I'm using it as a frame. So if we really, we're not going to stay frozen forever if it's treated properly. We're not going to stay in fight or flight forever if it's treated properly. So we naturally cycle out into what, and the polyvagal theory is, they call it social engagement. And it's really where I look at it as a nice balance of your parasympathetic and your sympathetic, which they don't use that language at all. But I, my education is there's a healthy sympathetic and the healthy sympathetic is you're engaged, you're alert, you're, you're interacting with life in such a way that it's giving you pleasure and satisfaction and you're still taking care of yourself. You're still rested. So it's kind of like your inner and outer at the same time, you know, going back to Wilbur, that modulating as needed. So right. you no. naturally c- come to the state, but you have to have permission, support and permission. Say, say what, what do you mean by that, uh, that you need permission? We think, as we were talking about before, that when we're in these states of freeze or fight and flight, something's wrong and we have to fix them. And we sometimes don't want to, so freeze is more, you need to be held, there's disassociation. Fight and flight, people are really afraid of and afraid of expressing. It's impolite, it's rude, it's, it's dangerous to express anger, to feel rage, to um, not just talk about your frustration, but to do something that moves your frustration. So one of the practices I had personally, and I've done it some with clients, is um, when I started moving more into the fight and flight, is I would just, and I apologize to people who are very sensitive about the feelings of trees, but I would take sticks and I would just whack a tree as hard as I could until the stick broke. Hmm. And it was so, um, so like, yeah. And it opened up my tears so deeply. And so being able to cry like that, like really hysterically cry was very cathartic, very cleansing. Um, how, but it's like you know i mean when do people really do this right no the i don't know who what poet used this phrase but it, it maybe roomy but, but the idea of being on the lip of sanity yes you know, you know you're just on the edge yeah. of sanity and, the, and there's this chasm yeah. on the other side and yeah. i as you're yeah. talking about that and i can imagine myself like i was i was chopping a lot of wood last fall or last winter i should mm-hmm. say and um and kind of having a similar somatic experience of just processing grief while in the action of chopping wood. And I could feel what you're describing with, with hitting a tree with sticks until they break and, and just letting the floodgates come yeah, open um, in, in kind of a raw. I mean, I think, I think that's, and I've heard like senior Dharma teachers talk about their own experience of grief when they lost, say, a parent or a, a loved one or a teacher. And they 
describe going through this intensity where there was it was just like a white hot emotion and i and i think i think people in my encounters with it when i'm in that kind of a state where things are just white hot and i'm i'm on the lip of sanity there's a feeling of again this feeling of being going to be swat you're swat going to get swallowed up by it and that that you'll you'll be kind of you'll lose yourself completely and and never come back yes and that's why it's it's so essential that you have um the holding around you i mean i've actually encouraged well one client in particular her and she she has a husband who's dying of cancer and she feels a lot of rage and so she took some friends and they were with her while they went to some kind of place there's a few of these now where you can just like smash plates you go inside and you just smash plates so she could really get into her anger and the the grief as the anger aspect of her grief but she wasn't on her own there's the holding so there's the internal holding that you can't rush any of this you shouldn't make any of this happen because you might not be ready for it mm-hmm. and so that's why again we're just meeting Like, I'm not saying like, okay, let's push today. It's like, if I'm noticing that someone is doing something with their hands or they're just feeling really agitated, I'll start with a gentle kind of push and see if they want to push more. I would never prescribe anything. I want to meet the person where they're at and see what they do with it. And a limitation in what I'm doing and a limitation in our society is that this isn't happening as a community. Right. And as you're speaking there, um, a question is forming in my mind around, is it, I mean, is it too soon to ask you? And if it is just disregard this, but um, maybe I'll speak from my side first and then ask you the version of this question, which is um, like I said, at the beginning, losing Michael was my first encounter with a a massive loss and I would say, even in the midst of the in- intense pain, coming to terms and recognizing how impactful his life was, how much impact he had, and, and re- hearing from people and how, in terms of how much he affected them and, and inspired them and, and touched them in their heart, um, I was left with immediately started to feel just this almost a legacy of, of duty, like a, a, that, mm-hmm. that, that, that because I knew him and because I saw what was possible, what he made possible in his own life, I felt like, okay, there's a, there's a, my own version of, of what he did that I can do, that I can do more of, that I can become more and I can open more and, and speak more about, about uh, things that really matter. Um, and, and I, I can only describe it as a sense of, of, of gratitude for that legacy. Um, mm-hmm. it, 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 uh, I forget the exact phrase that I tried to quote in the, in the Dharma or the, or the talk I gave about uh, his Dharma, but I, I, you know, I think Martin Amos used a phrase that uh, when Christopher Hitchens died, you know, that it was his solemn duty to live and love life the way Hitch did. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's sort of this, this thing that our friends, or loved ones bequeath to us when they pass, you know, their love of life become is, is becomes ours. Um, and it's a, it's a, 
paradoxical joy within that grief or, a, you know, a paradoxical a, a beauty in a way. And so the question I, I guess I'm framing around for you is, is how has, how would you describe, or have, have you noticed similar trends in yourself or have, uh, are there similar elements that you felt like this has made you bigger, has, has grown, made you grown or helped you grow into something that you was, was in potential form before, but is now being realized? Well, you know, I would say I've been less worried since Michael died. It's like a lot of the things that I would churn about seem way less important. Um, I would say I feel more certain of standing on my own ground. Hmm. Um, and, you know, my Alicia, my daughter, has done a tremendous amount of legacy work Um just incredible. As a matter of fact, there's the Michael Brooks legacy project that people should go check out because it's amazing. And she's working on a documentary. So in terms of Michael's actual work, I don't feel a big weight to take that on in the sense, I know it has to be forwarded, but my daughter's very, she knows that's what she needs to do. And she's been doing a beautiful job of it. There was like a 14 part academic conference on his work and She's done a whole um, Brief and Wondrous Life of Michael Brooks podcast where she's interviewed people from all over his life. And now she's working on this documentary. And for me, I think that, um, you know, I want to do it with the same kindness Michael could do it with, but I don't want to be polite anymore. You know, it's like, um, it's, this is very much on my mind and I'm speaking about it again, but it's, you know, I have a friend who's, you know, because she hasn't wanted to vaccinate, which, you know, I understand there are issues with vaccinations and drug companies for sure. But because she um, hasn't wanted to vaccinate, she's going further and further into this, um, you know, Bill Gates, Dr. Fauci kind of evil cabal that runs the world thing. Mm -hmm. And it lacks uh, Michael's rigor. (laughs) Um, You know, I mean, it's just like the fact that she doesn't listen to me. And I mean, Michael's brain was way bigger than mine. And I have that same kind of brain too, like, like much less developed, but it's like, I'm material analysis history here. Let's see what's going on. And the fact that she won't like, listen to me mm-hmm. is now unacceptable as opposed to like, oh, well, I'll still be polite. I'll still, you know, like we just will avoid that. Like I feel more of a need to confront where I feel people, um, people are operating in a ridiculous blind spot. Would you attribute that to a, a development of courage of sorts? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also because it's like, yeah, like, like my, I mean, I can't, I'm not funny. Like Michael, Michael would just make fun of her and I can't do that. I'm not a comedian, <laughs> but, but you know, yeah, it's a, it's kind of like, look, the, one of the most important things in the world to me is gone. And it's like, in the beginning, I wanted to be gone too. I didn't want to stay. And now I'm staying, but I'm staying in such a way that with the knowledge that you know, like who the hell cares at the end of the day, you know, if you're not um, appropriate and polite and here, it's like, what is real and what do you owe those 
who did leave their legacy to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Wow, this has been fantastic speaking with you. I um, I've just really enjoyed hearing everything you've had to say, and I hope uh, listeners are um, both intrigued by your work uh going that they'll check out your stuff um and we'll have links for your website and you have a course with yoga you on yoga and trauma i believe is that correct yes and um i could look for there's a course link that i have to look for in my email but i can get that to you so that's coming up that's just a two-hour uh powerpoint presentation and then there's going to be a companion video and yeah. then on my website, originalbodywisdom.com, there are little videos with resources, some blog posts, and people can book uh, a discovery session with me. As a matter of fact, I offer a free 20-minute um, evaluation if anyone's interested in working with me one-on-one. And I have Zoom classes, which are not about grief in particular, but really help people with their embodiment. So when basically something terrible happens if you're embodied you're going to have more resource to meet this freeze and flight and fight and all the emotions and mental activity which we didn't even touch upon that comes with that right you know i the um there's a a book by uh the the dharma teacher narayan liebenson who is one of the guiding teachers of the cambridge insight meditation center and she she was actually one of the teachers on that first retreat i sat with michael mm-hmm. um but she was talking in one of in her book the Mag- magnanimous heart she was speaking about grief and she said you know it's like a like a lightning a lightning rod or like sorry a lightning bolt and as humans we're we're, we're just we're vulnerable to strikes of lightning and um in her language and using this metaphor, she sort of suggested that the practice is, is one of r- reminding ourselves, recognizing that there is the sky that's undisturbed by the lightning, that the sky itself is, yeah. is, is um, yeah. able to hold it yes. and be with it, but not, yes. not, not, not disturbed by it. And I think the embodied practice, I mean, it sounds like this is kind of served you in that way in that you had years and years of that kind of work and practice on your own prior to this. And, and it, um, would you say that it, that it, 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 it helped carry you through this? Oh, without a doubt. I mean, it, it definitely, what it does is exactly like that with the sky and the lightning, because it is my sky in the sense that there's um, the physicality, the only place where I know life is in my body. I think it's the only place that any of us know life, but we often, because of our culture, think we know life through our head, especially. Sometimes through our emotions, but especially through our heads. But when you have enough embodiment, and some people have it naturally, you know, some people don't need to see me because, you know, whatever, they didn't get as disconnected from their bodies as other people do in this culture. But by and large, we're disconnected. And when you can come back into the body, it is where we experience life. And that experience of life moves through the body much the way you can say when you're meditating, you have things move through your awareness, right? Yep. So now it's, yes, awareness is part of, of our living structure, but so is 
just the blood, guts, you know, nervous system, tissue, fascia of the body. It's an ecosystem, really. Right, right. And I think maybe one of the final things I want to just say to you is, is, is a form of thank you in that I think the world needs individuals that are as courageous as you are to, to speak openly about this. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know how many parents would, would be able to go on a podcast and talk about um, the loss of their son or child. Um, and it's certainly a hard thing for me to still get my tongue around. Um, but I, I think because of its universality and um, particularly the kind of the, the acuteness of it now with the climate of the world and COVID, I, 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 I know that pe- many people are going to benefit from hearing um, you speak so authentically and openly about this. And um, I hope it contributes to a broader culture of, of expanding the way we talk and think and, and process grief, grief collectively. So just a Great. big, yeah. big, big thank, thank you, you, Josh. Thank you. Thank you for having me and asking such penetrating and open questions. It was really, yeah, no, it's been great. And I, I, um, as a, one of the things I've been doing on the podcast is having folks back. I've been having guests, uh, sort of more repeat guests and not, not as many newer, uh, voices, um, because I've been finding those ongoing conversations, uh, keep deepening mm-hmm. and getting more interesting. Mm-hmm. So I, um, I'm hoping I can maybe, gently touch your elbow not twist it but gently touch your elbow and yeah. get you back on again sure that sound that good awesome yeah that sounds great all right donna well thank you so much um i know you have to you have a session coming up but i just yeah. want to thank you and um everybody check out the links i'll have in the show notes for where you can find donna um all about her work with yoga therapy and um and then uh, i'll have a link or two about michael too because um he was. He is a a, a missed presence right now for sure. I, yeah, I miss him daily. Yeah, and I think, um, yeah, we'll get you the uh, link to the Legacy Project, and um, you know, Alicia's basically aggregating um, a lot of Michael and curating it. So yeah, no, she's that's a huge project she's been undertaking. Yeah. I'm, only, I'm peripherally aware of aware of. I've seen yeah. bits and pieces of it, and it's it's massive. So yeah. hats off to Alicia for all her hard yes, work absolutely. with that. Um, but Donna, thank you so much, and I hope to talk to you soon. Yeah, good. Be well. Okay, I hope you enjoyed today's conversation with Donna, and I hope it encourages you to check out her website at originalbodywisdom.com as well as her upcoming course with Yoga U, which is Stepping Safely into the Chaos of Grief with Embodiment Tools to Meet Loss and Grief With. Uh, There's links for you in the show notes. You can check out those there and uh, do let me know what you think. I I hope it's supportive to you in your practice. Um, Until I see you in the next episode, please stay safe, stay strong, take good care of yourself, and keep practicing. I look forward to seeing you soon. Take good care.